0: Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.com. .me forward slash pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Hey folks, just a quick announcement before we get rolling with this episode. I just uploaded 26 unique training plans to my website. They range from 12-week base building plans all the way up to advanced 100-mile training plans. If you're looking for a bit more guidance with your training, please consider checking out my offerings at zachbitter.com, that's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Once on the site, click the link on the top titled Training Plans and see if anything fits your needs. I'm also looking to continue to add to this catalog, so do not hesitate to reach out with any suggestions. Thanks, everyone. All right, folks, welcome back to the HPO podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. David Meyer, and he's a sports physical therapist and mental performance coach. Uh, David is a former Major League Baseball Rehab Coordinator and has now integrated the mental side into his physical rehabilitation. Uh, David, thanks so much for taking some time to come on the HBO podcast.
1: Zach, thanks for taking the time out of your running schedule to have me come on. I know, <laughs> I know you runners do a, do, a, do a lot of work around that stuff. So it's awesome seeing what you've done with your podcast and really pushing the performance side for the running uh, population, the endurance athlete population forward. It's something, an area that's uh, physical therapy has devoted a lot of their efforts towards, of course, with the injuries you see in your world. So it's awesome to be here.
0: Ah, uh, cool. yeah, I know I, th- I I like to think i'll I spend the mornings running my legs and then I hop on the podcast and spend the afternoons running my mouth. So it kind of balances things <laughs> out a bit. <laughs>
1: Plenty of calories being burned,
0: yeah, yeah, no way around it. So, uh, yeah, I think this is gonna be an exciting chat, I think, because we were just talking a little bit before I hit record about m- kind of just like this approach to rehab or injury in general. And you know, I think as athletes, I know I've done this in the past, like, you don't really want to think about that side of things like you don't want to think about being injured you don't want to think about rehabbing you want to think about training building getting ready for that competition you have that eye on that target and that's where that motivation comes and you know it's it's kind of a situation that we put ourselves into sometimes where if we're not thinking about these things we're setting ourselves up to potentially exasperate that problem or create that problem versus thinking about it before it happens versus trying to spend that mental energy in it into it once it does is this kind of what you're looking at doing is this your target
1: yeah you said a lot of interesting things there and uh, one of my favorite podcasts actually happens to be an ultra marathoner host rich roll who is really into the mindfulness space he has some real experts that come on and speak about that and what you were just saying kind of rang some bells there for me especially with mindfulness and Running is such an emotional thing. I'm not I wouldn't call myself a runner, but I love to run um because I think it's such a culture. And being that it's such an emotional type of activity for many, when you have an injury or thinking about an injury can really create a lot of negative thoughts and it can create a lot of tension because if you're taken away from running something that you're utilizing in your life as an effective way to cope with things and to develop yourself, not having that can be very scary. So, thinking about the mortality of your running or your injuries that might occur is a scary thing. However, just like any addiction with a, a chemical substance can occur, so can it occur with some of our physical habits. We see it in the bodybuilding world you rip your peck off the bone, and well, that is no longer really a good way to treat your body. The same thing with running, of course. So there is a balance. And my work has really focused on the mental side of both rehabilitation and performance with performers, whether you're a professional athlete, uh, a recreational athlete, or even a dancer or another type of performer. So it's an interesting conversation. We talk about how much awareness should we bring into our lack of resilience or how much awareness should we bring into our flaws or areas that might need attention. And I try in my work to focus on really development and growth rather than fixing problems. And I think we've had plenty of great clinicians over the last 15, 20 years, Gary Gray, when the foot hits the ground running, which is a a course that a lot of physical therapists take to learn about the biomechanics of running and the different ground reaction forces and how it affects the knees and the hips. And we've really understand those things well. But if we go up the chain, just a little bit further to that central nervous system, I think this is the area that we're just starting to really dive deeper into. And I think there's really a big push on the motor control side and proper technique and and motor learning. And that's again, something that really, I think we're doing a good job at, but then we take it even deeper into the more primitive parts of the brain and how that corresponds to our thoughts. And how do we respond when we wake up and our knee is bothering us and we have five to 10 miles we're supposed to run that day. What do we do first and foremost with our thoughts, our emotions before we even get into our training session? And so for me, I'm personally really interested in people's experience as athletes and really interested in their emotions as athletes. I'm not really as interested in mental toughness training or the next latest, greatest neuroscience article. I'm really obsessed with the human experience athletes have and our lack of thus far really integrating that into the training process.
0: That's really interesting. And one thing I thought about as you were kind of explaining some of that stuff is just I'll hear and see endurance athletes a lot of times where they'll be in a position where at one point in their life, they got injured or they found themselves kind of struggling if they hit a certain type of mileage per week or a certain type of workout tended to be a frustrating one for them. And they get into this mindset of, oh, I can't do that because this will happen. Or if I exceed this, that will happen. Mm. And I see folks on the other end, too, where they almost it's it almost comes across as a little bit of ignorance. But I think sometimes it's just uh, like, you know, strong self-belief in what their body's capable of. And they're like, well, I'm going to push the limits and try to go a little further, a little harder and is how does that kind of feed into that? Just like kind of that, that preconceived notion or that set of ideas that you kind of start out with, how does that play into kind of what you described where, is there a thing where the person who thinks, well, I can get through anything, wakes up with that sore knee and they go out and they're mentally able to just kind of get through it and it doesn't bother them. And then if it's if it, assuming it's not something that's really structurally bad, it just becomes out of sight, out of mind versus the person who kind of overfixates it on it because in the past that had caused them problems. And then they work it up in their mind and it just kind of becomes a, an issue that maybe is or isn't there the way they that it actually is. Or
1: That's an amazing direction to talk about. And there's a lot to unpack there. I think we should first start by kind of delineating a little bit of the difference between chronic and acute pain. There's been a lot of research over the last 10 years with pain science, and we've now realized that acute pain and chronic pain are actually, in fact, different mechanisms in our nervous system. And as a matter of fact, the 10% of our brain that's neurons, the other 90% being our glial cells or supportive structures that work a little bit differently. That's a system that's very involved with chronic pain. The interesting thing about that is there are these things called uh, pattern recognition molecules. And these molecules kind of are an interface between the more primitive parts of our brain, the more, the higher cortex, and even biomarkers in our blood of inflammation, things of that nature. So when we talk about chronic pain, we talk about preconceived notions about, is something gonna be good or bad for us? In a chronic state of pain, it's very complicated and the short answer is yes our thoughts absolutely influence what we're feeling and and what our sensations actually are and it does not really necessarily mean that there is necessarily a threat to our health or well-being if we're feeling a sore knee and we have a chronic issue in our knee it could be but it doesn't mean it is so that's the first thing that we should kind of talk about the Next thing I want to discuss is what I saw when I worked for the Cardinals. Players don't blow up. We hear the story in sports illustrated or wherever Twitter, whatever we read these days. And we hear about the baseball player that blew his ligament out in his elbow. We hear about the fractured bone in the basketball player. And it is not necessarily the case where people just blow up. As a matter of fact, chronic workload over time, especially in your world, all it takes is one set training schedule where you have a high acute load on top of that chronic workload, where then the system fails. So there is a lot of micro trauma that of course occurs. And that's why it's really important to take a global perspective and approach to to our entire well-being, not just looking at one training session, but looking at the entirety of it. And if we're not looking at our mental cr- workload, then we're not going to be able to address whether or not we're in a state of overtraining, undertraining, and finding that balance. So the second point is understanding that people tear tissue when they spike that load. I used to use a system called Catapult, to 3D a GPS tracker. And we would see the different spikes in load in pitchers and when they would injure themselves. And we would kind of uh, corroborate that data with other devices on the elbow, things of that nature. And it was very evident that there were these spikes in load that corresponded sometimes to injury, not always. So there is this, this understanding that chronic workload is very important to, to, to really understand first and foremost before even acute workload matters. So what you're waking up to that day is only important in the context of what's your month, what's your year, what your last five years has looked like in, in your life. So it's important to understand that because if we're just in knee-jerk reaction of how we feel every moment and we're not paying attention to our overall kind of uh, state of being mentally and physically, we're going to miss the boat. So that's the second thing to talk about. I think the third thing to talk about is what you said about your, our inner belief system. I think a lot of people have good intentions with their training. They want to grow. As a runner, you're really always trying to expand your your development. This is where a mindful approach is super important. It's not necessarily even a mental skill. It's really more of a a philosophy of self-awareness, and I think self-awareness or mindfulness can come in a million different forms. It doesn't mean you have to become a Buddhist. It doesn't mean you have to do headspace. It doesn't even need to mean you need to meditate. But I do think that we need to bring a curiosity and a, an awareness to what it is we're doing. Not just looking in the runner's magazine and, or looking now in the, the, the latest and greatest mental health uh, you know, thing that came out of, we have to be doing this for our mental well-being it's really about having awareness with yourself as an athlete i think that's where it starts
0: yeah i think those are all really interesting points and uh you know one, one thing i was thinking about before this interview too was uh, your background with with major league baseball players and specifically pitchers because i think uh that's just an interesting group of people to me because i mean the sport in general is kind of this scenario of like very, very slow moving and then incredibly explosive. And the pitcher kind of highlights that perfectly. And I would imagine just uh, in a sport like that, where if you do have something that's just a little bit off, whether it's an injury or something like that, the amount of like attention that needs to be given to be able to kind of get back into that state where you're confident to be able to, to deliver like that perfect pitch, which you're going to have to do 90 plus times a game in some cases uh, in front of thousands, thousands of people. And that, that seems to me to be such a delicate balance. Is that what kind of got you interested in this or was there something else that kind of spurred that on?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there's no, I don't think it's a coincidence. What do you see in a dugout or a locker room coffee and a lot of tobacco There is no coincidence why we see a ton of that in our baseball players. And when you're a pitcher, your job is literally don't screw it up. That's literally your job. You know, you set, you come in there with zeros, don't screw it up. And there's a lot of pressure, but they're not really encouraged to talk about that feeling there. How do you feel? Well, no, you, you made it to the highest level of baseball. Go out there and do your job. However, I realized ignorantly, of course, because my dream was to be in baseball, that actually they are under a tremendous amount of stress and they're feeling it and it's manifesting into a lot of their behaviors. I had a specific moment to answer your question. The player was sitting there on the training room table. Of course, I won't share his name. He was sitting with his legs crossed on the table. And it was my first year with the Cardinals and I was really inundated with a ton of players in the training room. I had 15 players in there, you know, in the clinic, one patient an hour. Now it's 15 on top of the hour. I had the players with the bands doing some shoulder work. I had players out there throwing. I had this player sitting there in front of me and his head was kind of down. And I I consider myself an intuitive empath. I felt that he just, he wasn't in a good mood. And instead of me really being mindful of my practice, because I was a little burnt out after just being a PT for a few years and saying, hey, let's go into the training room office and talk. I just kind of made a little small joke, made light of the situation, tried to kind of up his spirits a little bit. And that was really that. Six, I think about a year goes by. And one day I come into the the facility and we're told by the farm director that, player X attempted suicide unsuccessfully, thank God. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like a deer in headlights when I heard it. And I was really frustrated with myself because I didn't act the way I should have, or I feel like I could have, and I didn't really miss it at the same time. So I kind of vowed to myself after that point that I wasn't going to miss these moments when I felt it with, with the athlete. Then eventually I realized, well, the physical domain is well under control, there's plenty, there's no shortage of what exercises to do for you know, strengthening your glute or your rotator cuff, there's plenty of that out there. But what was lacking was an integrated approach where we can put it all together. And as a physical therapist, I felt like I had the insights both physically and picking up on a lot of things mentally from also my own upbringing, my father who suffered from chronic kidney disease, had two transplants, he passed away when I was pretty young at 21. And I decided I was going to triple down on it. And it's been an interesting journey. And it's been kind of a rediscovery of a lot of things that I knew intuitively were important. But going kind of back to the basics of how are you feeling today? Not how is your knee feeling? How are you feeling? Because your knee is not an entity. We give it agency, we give the knee a life of its own, but it has no life. It's part of you. And I think as PTs, we kind of forgot that.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because if I'm understanding kind of what you're explaining properly, it's almost like the physical therapy world is kind of a reactional world in the sense that we address these situations once they happen, because then they're they're a highlighted problem. You've isolated that knee issue, that elbow issue, shoulder issue, whatever happens to be. Whereas you're looking at it like if we can control the human emotion, we can avoid putting our physical self into these positions where those injuries occur. So if we look at your pitcher, for example, um, or any pitcher for that matter, let's say, you know, they're, you know, had something happen in their life before that game, they drink a bunch of coffee, they get hopped up, they go out there and they're just like, you know, almost, almost like way outside of their normal mental state to the degree where they're going to push their body past, or in a way that isn't going to be ideal for what they've built it to do. And when you do that too many times, you just give yourself so many potential opportunities to get hurt to end up in the rehab mm-hmm. place. So you're trying to approach that where let's put you in this state mentally, where we know that you're going to perform the way your body's ready to perform and minimize the num- number of opportunities that you're putting yourself in a position to get hurt. Uh, if, if is that kind of what you're, t- you're saying?
1: Yeah, everything you said is spot on. And to go a little deeper. mean I, I, first, I should say, I don't know if we can control the presence of our emotions. There's a lot of science that says we can't. I look at it as weather, right? The mm-hmm. rain's coming. Are you going to put your umbrella up? or Are you going to get soaked? Are you going to put your all wheel drive system on? When you're in the snowbank, or are you just gonna skid out? So it's really leveraging your emotions. That's my personal belief, and and my mentor. I have a mentor that's more Eastern based, and he's very much a believer that we can control some of that. And I have my more Western mentor, who's a psychologist, who will share the empirical data that, well, Dave, no, we really can't control some of these primitive uh, feelings that we experience in our hind or our deeper part of our brain. So going even deeper though, Zach, when did you start running? Well, a lot of people that are not Olympic runners, probably maybe they started running when they were out of high school or college. When we talk about a professional athlete and and plenty of runners too, a lot of them started, especially running. I mean, we all ran to some degree. We started at such a young age. So you take the baseball player just because, of course, that's some of my main experience, That pitcher started throwing the ball at five years old. Okay. Positive reinforcement. Simply put, just talking about the deep brain, mom and dad behind Johnny or whoever, and they're smiling, they're clapping. He or she did a good thing. More positive reinforcement. They keep playing. And then at some point in time, they become a major league pitcher their entire nervous system and identity has been built upon a habit loop. Essentially, it became habitual. When are you going to take a second mindfully, whatever you want to call it, and to some degree take inventory of who you are? Because we're so obsessed with performance. I'm obsessed with life performance, fulfillment, because... Like players got their releases after my third year with the Cardinals, I wasn't brought back for a fourth year. So I had an identity crisis, just like the players who have injuries have an identity crisis. So I realized, Zach, that injuries are, are these many forms of identity crises. But then every day, if we look within our identity to really grow beyond just the athlete within us, We can use what we have learned about our bodies to help our life, our career, our relationships. Because is it really different pushing through discomfort running as it is pushing through an argument with a significant other? It's the same pathways in our brain. So I guess I've become this life coach, physical therapist person that is just using the physical side as an avenue to better understand overall growth and development. And I think it's really important that we pay attention to our stories more so so than our title, whether that's marathon runner, physical therapist, major league ball player. I think it's really important that we look into what our story has become, our narrative. And I think that can offer us a lot of insight to Instead of wondering, well, should I be doing Olympic style training to improve my performance? Should I be working more with kettlebells? What if you took a moment and you just really looked at your, your identity as a whole, look at your patterns of behavior, look at your thinking, and just taking some time to bring awareness to that, not going out and becoming you know, some crazy meditator, but just really thinking about this and bringing curiosity to it maybe it's possible that your entire life would be more fulfilling if you did that. And you stepped away from the habit of figuring out the next training program or the next PT you're going to work with. And that's, yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Okay. That's the, this is a really cool topic. I think, I think it's something that is, I mean, essentially it's a finding this balance because when I think about this, my wife and I talk about this from time to time as well, because she's, you know, she's an ultra marathon runner. She's, got a bunch of other things going on in her life too. And uh, one thing that always kind of uh, shows up with her that she recognized from time to time is if she begins to put too much emphasis on her identity as a runner and neglects her identity on other things in life, like her professional career, her friends and relationships and things like that, it gets to a point where then if you have a bad race or a bad workout, it's like your whole house crumbled down on you versus... Oh, I just have like a mess in the living room. I need to clean up the type of a mindset. And when you start to kind of look at that in that same balance where it's okay that I really enjoy running and I want to make that a big focus of my life or whatever sport or activity that might be, that's fine. But I need to make sure I keep kind of stoking these other areas or avenues in my life so that when things are maybe not perfect in the other one, I'm not overly fixating on it and getting myself into this kind of negative spiral of thoughts and emotions is that what you're talking about with whole picture?
1: Yeah, we can catastrophize when, like we talked about earlier with running being maybe a good outlet or a good habit. When that goes out of control, it's easy to feel like everything's falling apart. That's what happens with athletes. And it's funny, good habits that we put into place can become bad habits at a certain point, And they, they can become problematic. Um, so I think- when we're feeling that again you're maybe not able to to control the the emotion maybe you feel crappy cuz now you're not training well or you're not running well and then you come home your wife comes home and is not really super enthused about whatever you and your wife are doing and maybe she's not present in the conversation i don't think maybe you you can't necessarily control feeling that however taking a, a second taking a moment and saying, okay, well, my running didn't go great today, but now I'm taking something that I used to be a healthy part of my life. And now I'm letting that be destructive to the person that I'm with, that I love, that I'm supposed to be supportive of. And then that in and of itself is really the entirety of it. Now you can not compartmentalize things, but you can really wonder about, well, hold on. Am I using this appropriate, appropriately in my life? And I think that's, that's the muscle that we all need to build up the most, the awareness muscle, the, uh, the calm, really, finding that calm within us that, you know, that it's, it's difficult. And the, the analogy I use is when you watch a surgeon not so much an orthopedic surgeon, they're the carpenters, right, of surgery. But if you think of like a neurosurgeon and you think of her working on a brain, if you'd imagine that, even if you never saw what a brain surgery looks like, do you think that neurosurgeon is really kind of working quickly and her hand is kind of quivering and shaking? Or is she very cool, calm, collected, and confident and putting into action whatever it is that surgeon's looking to do of course they're going to really find they intuitively have to be calm so we want to approach our training like that our life like that it doesn't mean that you're being slow lazy not a high performer as a matter of fact it's the opposite when you see the pitcher on the mound in the world series sure you see their heart you you know you see them labor breathing a little bit but the really good ones they look pretty calm actually with 40,000 people in the stands and they're doing big things. So I think that's the same thing when you think of a runner's high, you know, that flow state. Flow state is actually a really super calm place to be for those that have been there. It's almost like the wind's behind you. And we got to, we should approach our life like that and our injuries like that and, and our problems like that. Instead of letting it bring us into, ha- into worry, into anxiety, and letting those catastrophize, as you were alluding to, we want to get back to that calm state. And to get to the calm state, we must tap into the primitive brain. And one of the reason we talk about breathing so much is because it's one of the physiological mechanisms we have the most control over. So if we can go into our breath, then that can, that's the moment there, the, the awareness and the curiosity there of, well, why am I fighting with my husband because I had a bad running session today? That doesn't make much sense. Get into the breathing there. And then it's not just go about your day, but really try and take note of how that shifted, how that really shifted your, your moments there, your day. And that's the type of mental skills I'm talking about.
0: This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by BiOptimizers Breakthrough Magnesium. Magnesium is responsible for powering over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. It has been estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient in magnesium. Often people don't recognize that there are at least seven types of magnesium. Most magnesium supplements contain one or two forms of these seven types. Bioptimizers has formulated their magnesium supplement to contain all seven forms of magnesium. Breakthrough Magnesium has a select packages available for up to 40% off when combined with our custom 10% discount code, which will be activated by entering the coupon code HUMAN10 when you head over to www.magnesium.com. Breakthrough.com forward slash human. All links and codes will be included in the show notes. Now on to the next topic. I think I have like two sort of follow-up questions there. And, And one is, what is it, is this, or what are some like maybe actionable items for folks, maybe not professional athletes, but just everyday folks that want to kind of leverage this And then kind of the second or kind of parallel question that goes with that would be like, is this essentially kind of just asking yourself to maybe account for why you're doing what you're doing and getting in a habit of doing that so that you have this kind of blueprint intuitively in your head that, oh, I'm doing this for this reason. And I know that this is a good reason versus I'm doing this because, you know, you somehow, it becomes like a coping mechanism. You come up with a coping mechanism to do something. Cause you just, you, for whatever reason you intuitively want to be doing that.
1: Yeah. I, we talk about something called thought viruses, uh, and I call them negative thought viruses. And if you think about a virus, it could spread as good bacteria or bad bacteria, good virus or a bad virus. And, a negative thought virus is one that is exactly like you described. My training session went bad. Now that virus metastasizes into the home setting. How do you cure the thought vi- the negative thought virus? Well, one of those could be, of course, first you have to take note of it. So you have to be aware of it. And you want to be aware of the, first of all, if it's, if it's pain we're talking about, and your listener is somebody that is a runner that has pain. Well, okay. You probably have awareness of your pain. Now you want to expand about that, expand that awareness to maybe your emotional state, your thoughts. And maybe your thoughts are, oh, my knee is never going to be right. I'm not going to be able to run my marathon in six months. And then you want to work on affirming some of the things that are going in the right direction. So you want to affirm that your knee is healing. You want to affirm that you have an action plan for your recovery. And you want to use these affirmative statements with yourself when you kind of cue in And you feel that negative thought virus. The other, I guess if I could say the one thing, stop trying to fix your pain, especially when it's chronic pain. Chronic pain is very different than acute pain. And I don't know, you can't really necessarily fix chronic pain with the standard physical treatments. So you create this crazy loop of just reinforcing the pain. So if anyone out there is somebody that suffered from on and off pain as a runner, The biggest piece of advice I can give you is stop trying to fix your pain and start trying to bring more awareness into your emotional and your emotional state and your thoughts related to that pain, because that is going to be the segue really out of it.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, once you start kind of thinking about just the whys of these things, it starts to become maybe a little more clear because I mean, you, you, you almost have to hold yourself accountable to a degree then, because if you ask yourself why and you honestly don't have an answer, then that's probably like that first red flag.
1: One thing about why we want to be a little bit careful with why, because when we think about why we go into our prefrontal cortex, our, our neocortex, the more evolved part of our brain and When we're talking about emotions and we're talking about even pain, that part of the brain does have an involvement there. However, the deeper parts of the brain are a lot stronger. So you you can't necessarily rationalize very well with the amygdala. So I totally agree with what you're saying in terms of understanding. I think we should have an understanding. But in the moment, in the moment, we want to focus on, the physiological abilities we have to regulate that which is bringing awareness to our breath or bringing awareness to to just what we're feeling into our body getting out of our head a little bit however in terms of learning a new habit or a way of thinking and also thinking about the reward you do want to understand the why a little bit and maybe you come to the realization that ah, huh, you know what it's because I'm overtraining. Well, if you think about overtraining equals my knee hurts more, then that is something you want. Hmm. You do want to take note of that. But in the moment, the deeper part of your brain is not going to right away understand that it's going to take a little time for that to set in. So it's, it's a combination of both for sure. I, I totally agree.
0: And you, you mentioned breathing a couple of times is the reason why that's so effective because I know you said, cause it's something you can kind of control. It's like, you're going to breathe naturally, but I can also sit down and consciously think about how I'm doing it. So like yeah. when I think about breathing, if I just don't, well, actually I should, re, I should back up. If I don't think about breathing and I get worked up about something, you know, it's probably going to accelerate and happen a little differently if I'm not actively trying to control it versus you know, recognizing that and then potentially kind of slowing down and starting to do maybe some deeper breathing and trying to slow those other areas down by controlling my breathing. Is that kind of how that all connects?
1: There's a lot of different, uh, science. There's a lot of science behind the breathing. So one is, uh, just the simple fact that our breathing becomes labored in a state, a sympathetic state, of course, in a stress state, our, our ventilation goes up, our heart rate goes up. So of course there's just this, this simple, really scientific fact that our breathing gets out of control. That's number one. Number two is it gives us something to really go into our body with. So our breath is, we can't really necessarily go into our heart rate. You can't quit. You can't directly control your heart rate like that right away. And of course we have an autonomic nervous system that controls all that very complicated stuff, but our breathing, as a matter of fact, we, we almost, we have just about full control over it. And so the second piece to it is just a strategy to get out of your thoughts and into your physiology. The third reason is a, a lot of evidence shows that our breathing, there's something called heart rate variability, which I'm sure you you know a lot about in the running world, and heart rate variability being a, one of the key indicators over the last decade of recovery. Well, there's a company called HeartMath, which I don't know if you're familiar with, where they hook up some sensors to your earlobe, they look at your heart rhythm, they look at your breathing, and they realize that actually when we're in uh, a more calm, relaxed state of breathing, our heart rate variability improves. And that allows us to be in a less sympathetic state. And of course, there are times where we don't want to be always in a very calm state. If we're running as quickly as we can, whether it's from the saber-toothed tiger or to win in the merit to, you know, beat the person next to you in the marathon. Well, maybe you don't necessarily want that, but in terms of most of your day, you do want that. So those are the three elements why breathing is so important. Now, for me, I teach a reset breath, which is a quick thing. You could be on the golf course. The first, uh, do you want me, can I walk the listeners through real quick? Sure. Yeah. 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 So it's called a reset breath. Learned it from my mentor, John Denny with the harmony exercise. It's a guided meditation. It's my favorite. And the first step to the reset breath is just, we call heart mind focus. So just bringing your mind surrounding your heart, whatever that means to you, just really going into your body and letting thoughts kind of come and go as a car passing by would. The second step is just a really simple breath. I don't like to put too many variables to it because it gets confusing. So the way I describe it is in through the nose and out through the mouse. And just nice breath in, full exhalation out. And then the third step is just pairing a thought of gratitude to this breath. It could be if you're on the golf course and seeing a beautiful tree or green grass or just happy you're out there, or so you can see the shot going well and you can just be thankful for seeing that. If you're a runner and you have a nice scene that you're running into, just being grateful for whatever it is you're looking at in nature. And that's it. Those are the three steps, and you go you go forward with whatever it is. You can cue in that reset breath when you're feeling yourself in a stress state. That's one of my favorite quick tools. I guess I could have answered this one with what you asked me before in terms of what's a quick practical thing anybody can take. And it doesn't have to be a long winded thing. You could do it right away. And this this is something I talk about in my book, and I have a lot of other strategies too. But I'm really I guess I'm going more in the direction of minimalism with my approach when I work with people. Less is more. And this is a really important tool to have on our tool belt.
0: Yeah. I think it's really interesting. I think I've played around with some breath work, uh, not necessarily intentionally for the reasons that you've mentioned, but I think kind of, they would be similar in, 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 and how they kind of play out where uh, what I'll find is like, if I do like maybe a little bit of a higher intense workout later in the day, or uh, I eat dinner a little later than I normally would, or for whatever reason, I'm a little more fired up uh, when it's starting to get around to the time of the day where I should start kind of bringing things down and getting myself ready to be able to, you know, get to bed mm-hmm. on time. Mm-hmm. And I find that that breath work just works really well at kind of recentering that and kind of bringing you back into that state. Uh, and it sounds like it's maybe just something where, people should maybe broaden their horizon as to how they can leverage that or open up like the different opportunities. It doesn't necessarily have to be like, well, it's getting close to bedtime. I better bring things down. It could be, I've got a, my anxiety and emotions are getting kind of revved up because I've got this really important meeting at 10 AM. Let's do some, you know, five minutes of breath work in order to kind of get things a little more controlled and get myself into that positive mindset uh, so that I can go and kind of deliver the way I'm intending to.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we hold on to our anxiety and our worry very tightly and that becomes, it could become part of our identity. Same thing with pain. Our pain can kind of take hold of us and we give it a little too much fuel. And if we could do a little breathing, like you said, to just kind of separate from that a little bit, it's a beautiful thing. And I think that's the the start for a lot of people.
0: Cool. So let's switch gears a little bit here. I want you just mentioned pain. And I'm thinking when you said that I'm thinking of mile 80 of a hundred mile race and like a quad screaming at me,
1: makes me nauseous. (laughs)
0: Is, is that something you can practice during an event even like that, where, uh, perhaps breathing is maybe a little different there because there's going to be a certain amount of like oxygen requirement, depending on the event and the intensity and all that stuff. But is there, when we're talking about pain management, is, is there some application there for that, where what, what can be done in order to kind of redirect our brains. We're not maybe over fixating on that and thinking more about other things that are going to kind of dull that pain, at least in our mind.
1: Yeah. So hats off to anybody listening. That's and and you included, if you've ran 80 miles, that's an enormous (laughs) feat. That is unbelievable. And I think grit is something that I write about in my book a lot. And if you're getting to 80 miles, you are a gritty person. There's no question about it. You, you, I haven't done the study myself, but I'm, I'm guessing that you'd score high on the grit scale. And that alone is really an incredible way to get through challenges. In terms of the pain, I don't know if, how much you can will away pain at 80 miles because you, you, know, you overrode your, your body system, and that's really almost an art. Right? The art of running at that point. What separates the elite runner from the non elite when their genetics already are, you know, if you're getting a 70, 80, whatever, like they're all kind of pretty damn good, right? I think there's probably an art to it. But if you just take a moment to think about this for a second, the emotions and the feelings you're experiencing, maybe not so much the intensity of it, but the overall feelings and the emotions that you're getting to at mile 80 are not that unfamiliar to you. It's just the intensity and the magnitude that is totally different. It's just amped up and, uh, and, and that's really what might affect you. But in and of itself, the emotion, whether it's the t- feeling of tired, feeling of hunger, uh, frustration, that whole entire soup, your feeling of emotions, well, when you wanna practice those, are on your good days every day. So if you're going about your day right now and somebody cuts you off and you have a marathon coming up in six months and that person who cuts you off on the road really disturbs your day, then I want you to think about mile 79 because in mile 79, I think you're going to be a little more frustrated than that person cutting you off. So the best thing you can do when you spill the, the milk and when somebody cuts you off and when you have a little pain in your shoulder, is to bring the awareness we're talking about because you're going to be at a point where you're pushing on all cylinders. You're going to be essentially a Navy SEAL, and when you're there, you better hope that leading up to that race, you found your calm in your day. You you should have you you won that race way before you ever ran it. I truly believe that.
0: Hey folks, I want to make a quick shout out to some of my personal athlete sponsors and offer all of you some discount options if you think my gear is also right for you. My shoe of choice, Ultra Footwear, is offering listeners 15% off. They make a foot-shaped, balanced, cushioned shoe that fits like a glove. S-Fuels is offering 5% off and they are my go-to low-carb workout and lifestyle product of choice. Eggweights is offering 15% 15% off their running form strength work and recovery products finally purpose performance wear is offering 10% off my favorite workout apparel including my own signature series so head over to zachbitter.com forward slash my gear or the profile link on my social media channels to check out these discounts and more all right folks now back to the show Yeah, it's really interesting. I think there's, it it almost kind of turns into like, how can we look at life experiences and use them to our advantage when we find ourselves in a situation where we should be able to thrive on paper comparatively? And when you, I think when most people recognize that, they start thinking like, almost along the lines of, uh, you know, I should be able to do better than, or be better than this. And when they hold themselves accountable at that point, then it becomes perhaps a little easier to, to recenter.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I've never done what you all do, but I can tell you, I'd imagine I've heard that it's a very cathartic experience. When you get to that point, you start feeling different emotions and it can bring you to spiritual places. I would imagine that, if you were living your life up until that point, the way that's really in line with the core values of, of what should define high performance in many ways, at least for you, I think it should be a little easier. I I mean, I've heard this by other people too. I should share Uh, one of my, the, the, one of my guests on my show and one of my friends, Aaron Plasinski was a Hollywood producer and he did so he, he filmed something in, Alaska, I think, called the uh, Iditarod, or I forget how it's pronounced.
0: Iditarod, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and he told me this, and I, I'm sure you all know this, but he said the winners of the race were not the ones that came in all gung ho and you know psyched themselves out. It, it was the ones that just took it mile by mile and were super calm. And I, I think if we take our days that way, right? Like if we go into our day hype. If we overhype ourselves, it's the same thing. So, like, if you really want to train yourself for that race when you're at mile 79, put yourself there right now because you're having these micro mile 79s all the time. You're getting these spikes. You talk about physical load through the knee joint. Well, you're getting these through your emotions all the time. And if we are really experts in handling that now, That's going to be the difference maker. I'm totally convinced in your performance.
0: Yeah. You know, you made me think of something because, uh, when I feel like I've really started to understand just the psyche of running, say a hundred mile race is when I found a way to kind of mentally practice those parts of the race that you can't really physically do in training. And the unique thing about ultra marathons is, you know, unlike a 10k or a half marathon, I'm going to go get nowhere near race day distance in training. The last exposure point would have been the last time I raced it. And it may only have been a couple times in a year, two, three times, maybe at most in a lot of cases. So you find these ways to put yourself in those moments in training so that when you get to the race itself, it doesn't feel so foreign or so far in the background. So it sounds like what you're saying is when you recognize kind of those, those mini mile 79s or those little experiences and recognize them and do the right things on a routine basis with that, it becomes so intuitive that you kind of have that situation where when you do get to those spots that are actually difficult, that are hard to actually find yourself in more than a a couple of times a year, or maybe even once in a lifetime, you've kind of prepared yourself to deal with it because of the small practice moments that you gave yourself in throughout your day-to-day life.
1: Yeah. I, I, again, you know, I'm not in the ultra marathon space myself, so I don't know what it's actually like to be in there, but whatever our mile 79 is in our life, we don't want to, of course we might not be able to prepare fully physically for it, but we want to take every advantage of the moments we have throughout our days to exude this level of inner peace, harmony, calm and never confuse that for being weak or being too spiritual or being wonky with your thoughts or or just being lazy that's not at all what it is it's about in my opinion it's really mental fortitude there to have that awareness to have that ability to react better to your to your own thoughts and your emotions i think that is the new type of elite athlete, the elite athlete that has that sense of purpose, not just a runner. You know, I think we're past those days of looking at these idolizing athletes that are paper thin. I think we, we care more about their story now and we, we care more about their purpose. And if, if we, in our own lives, whatever level of athlete we are, if we can exude that, I think, uh, the race is, is, is more worth, whatever that training requires and letting it fuel the rest of our life. Let that be the engine, but don't let it be the reason, if that makes sense.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you're, I think you touched on something that I've seen throughout my running career, kind of almost turn this direction is, you know, when, I guess when, when I was growing up, it was like, I mean, you'd see this professional athlete and they would be this like, deity figure to you and you almost didn't want to know about their personal life or anything outside of their performance right. because heaven forbid you find a flaw and now all of a sudden mm. this person you deified is got these these like, things that you consider a negative which you don't want to necessarily tie to them and then you lose a little bit of that respect and that, uh, that awe from them where I feel like I'm, I'm guessing this has something to do with social media and the internet and just how much access we have to one another now. But it has, it did switch where now it's less important about, oh, that person really nailed that race. That person won that Super Bowl ring, you know, these sort of things. It's like, well, that's almost like reading the end of a story and hearing the end result without knowing, you know, the chapters that led up to that. Now people want to know, well, what were the chapters that led up to that? What is happening behind the scenes? Like, what, what motivated that person even get into the sport in the first place. And I think that's more intriguing to people now. And sometimes being the best at what you do, isn't necessarily what people want to see. They just want to see how did this person become their best self? Because that's actionable for everybody.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if you talk to most runners and you ask them the reason why, if you really put them on the shrink couch, if you, if, if you are a shrink and you in, you really questioned, why are you doing this? I don't think it's because of mile 79 or mile 80 or mile 100. I don't think the mileage has anything to do with it. It is there there's some symbolism there for some type of process that that you're going through in your life, some kind of growth you're yearning for. And well, if if you turn it back inward then and you turn it away from the the concrete and the terrain and you realize that you're searching for something inside then wouldn't you want to go inside first and foremost? And I guess that's what I'm saying. Whatever type of athlete you are, go inward before you go outward. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's really interesting stuff. And I think it, at, at the core of it, it's just I I hope what people would take away from this podcast is just to think about these sort of things and 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 try to put it in context for their own life and things like that. But David, you mentioned that you have a book. Is your book kind of touch on a lot of these things or what is, can you give us a bit of a um, a brief overview of that? So if folks are interested, they know what they're going to kind of get yeah, into. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I was challenged by one of my patients that uh, he didn't know if I could write a book and I have a little bit of a short man complex. So (laughs) when (laughs) he told me that, I took it to heart and I said, okay, well, watch me. And uh, for somebody like myself, I was learning disabled growing up and uh, I never thought I'd be an author. So anyway, it's titled Injury to Elite, A Guide to Empowering Yourself to Transform Your Life After Injury. And you can get the first third of the book for free at injured forward slash listen. And it's the most important section of the book. It's all about the mind. And it's really a comprehensive guide to rehabilitation. It's a self-help guide for rehab because I didn't see anything out there on it. And I figured there should be something of that nature. So uh, you could check it out on Amazon or head over to uh, the website I just shared and uh, follow me on Instagram. I have a lot of content Just moved last week, so I've been a little slower on social. But uh, Dave M Meyer, Dave M M E Y E R, I got a lot of videos and uh, quotes I put up that uh, that I think really can help.
0: Awesome. Well, Dave, what I heard there was you're so confident in the last two thirds of your book, you're going to give the first third away for free because you know everyone's going to (laughs) come for the rest.
1: (laughs) I, uh, you know what, I, I I really think there's a lot in the, uh, in the entire book. And I'm just uh, happy to be here, Zach. And I appreciate you having me on.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving us some time and coming on the show. I'll be sure to link the book and your social handles and things to the show notes too. So folks, if you're interested in checking out his book or, uh, following on Instagram, social media, you can click through it there. Uh, but David, thanks again for giving me your time. I know you're busy with the move and all that stuff. So, uh, um, best of wishes with that. I know how, how much extra work that can give you sometimes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks Zach and uh, keep on running man
0: <laughs> thanks take care thank you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast if you enjoyed the show please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at zackbitter on instagram at zbitter on twitter and at zach.bitter on facebook you can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.